Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by myself, sommelier Jill Mott, and radio host, Emily Reese. On this episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of the piano. How did we get, in particular, from harpsichord to piano? And I'm going to talk about the history of, or the development of, vessels to ferment and age wine throughout the ages. Love that. Check out patreon.com slash scoresandpours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Cha-ching! Wine one. Wine two. Wine two is quiet about its entrance into the world, but it's quite bubbly. It's a year older. Okay. Which could, you know, the bottles can be, um, ooh. I know. It's like Rice Krispies, but better. <laughs> they do talk to you. Do you hear them? They do talk to you. <laughs> do you hear them? <laughs> it's pretty great. Well. Uh, hi, Jill Mott. Hello, Emily Reese. How's it going? Uh, it's going especially well today. We're going to drink two fabulous wines. I'm so excited. I haven't had either one of these. Fabulous. Like, are we back in the Sex in the City days or something? I don't know. I never watched it. Okay. Well, that's your bad then. <laughs> <laughs> How did we? How did we decide on the development of the vessel? I mean, I know that I chose development of vessels because there's plenty to talk about. But it also there's I think now a lot of p- folks that are buying wine um, and and sommeliers that are drink. You know, a lot of people that are drinking wine out there. Like they they're talking with more interest of the vessel in which the wine is reared. And there was a long time that people only really talked about stainless steel and oak. And mm. now there's just like tons of other things to talk about, but we've been able to talk about those for like thousands of years, which is, which is cool. So yeah. how did you decide on the piano? I don't really remember how I decided on the piano, but I do love the transition between harpsichord and piano because there's a lot of stuff in between that happened that's kind of fun. And some of it is still played. So we'll get to hear, you know, modern recordings of these instruments, whether they're replicas of instruments from the 1700s or whether they're actually instruments from the 1700s. It's kind of fun to hear what happened in between those because I think, you know, particularly people listening would probably be accustomed to knowing that's a harpsichord, that's a piano. But there's all that fun gray area in between and we'll hear a couple of those today. The Frizzante wine, I'm just putting it to my ear and it says that it agrees with you. That's, that sounds like a great, a great reason why. I heard it say, let's drink. Oh, That's okay. That's what I heard yes. it say. <laughs> All right. I'll be sure. Okay. <laughs> let's make that happen. And I, um, we also talked about going to the Schubert Club, which we just visited a short oh. bit ago. And that was like, I remember us talking about like the development of instruments and you were like, we should go to the Schubert Club. Or maybe I said, we should go to the Schubert Club. Mm-hmm. And then we were like, we should do an episode on yeah. The development of the piano and knowing you love the harpsichord mm-hmm. and it just seems like a natural a natural thing. Yeah, we are very fortunate here in the uh, Twin Cities. It's actually in St. Paul, right across the river. There's an organization called the Schubert Club and they're kind of like a chamber music or- organization. They put on a lot of small, intimate chamber music concerts. So with chamber music, we're talking about string quartets or maybe a piano duo or a solo violin or, so, you know, just smaller, not full orchestra stuff, right? Yeah, they also have a fantastic museum. And they have that 
badass museum that's full of all these instruments, some of which we're even allowed to play, which is great. And then they have like the don't touch room. That they actually yeah. let me touch, which is really cool. Yeah, they did. <laughs> I was like, wow, Felix Mendelssohn played on this. I'm just going to sit here for 10 seconds longer. Yep. That was amazing. So yeah, we got to do that, uh, which was fun. Ooh, so this is a frizzante. Frizzante. This that we're actually tasting right now is a disgorged pet nat, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. We'll talk about that when we get to stainless steel, because this wine is done in stainless steel. But what I wanted to show was the difference between, instead of tasting all four wines and having four vessels, we've tasted from pretty much every vessel that you can make wine in. Yeah. Uh, we've tasted from here on Scores and Pours. And so I really wanted to do two that were radically different, one of which we haven't tasted yet, Mm -hmm. just to show how big of a difference it is. And I think starting with stainless steel and going to acacia and then going back to stainless steel will really drive Mm -hmm. that home. So just to, I guess, throw out there for listeners what we're drinking, we are drinking Javier Courant, who, Javier Courant, he's from, um, he lives in the Loire Valley. This is his, you know, Domaine Nubile is what it's called. Loire Valley in France. Yep, thank you. And uh, Le Valseuses, no, that's, that's how it would be in, in Spanish. Valseuses. I think is how you would say it, Le Valseus. And um, it's a Chenin Blanc that is done in a pet nat style, which we'll talk about that stainless steel. So you're noticing it's going to be fruity, it's going to be easy, but we'll talk about that in a second to scores and pours. Scores and pours. Oh, just put summer on speed dial. Yeah, that's what, right? That's what I want right now. Light, just- crisp, refreshing. We'll talk <laughs> more about its attributes. Delightful fruity aftertaste as well. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a goodie. Clean. Mm. Speaking of clean, mm-hmm. and this is sort of like, I feel like direct and to the point. It's refreshing. It's crisp. Yeah. There's not any sulfur added. It's Shannon. Stainless steel. Let's talk about direct, to the point, harpsichord. Is that where we're going to start or <laughs> sure. no? Okay. Oh, yeah. I think, well, what we're going to do is we're going to hear a lot of these side by side all together. So, because that's really what's going to drive home the point. Okay. Right now, we'll talk about the ways you can make a sound on a string. Because, of course, a piano is, is it's got a lot of strings in it, right? It's considered a percussion instrument. It's part of the percussion family, which is pretty fascinating. But when you think about the strings in Percussion meaning like the drums, the rhythm mm-hmm. section. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when you think of, um, if you think of a bare string, the, the ways you can make noise on that string, you can pluck it, you can hit it with something, or you can bow it with something. And so we see all of those examples in music, whether it's a violin where we're bowing the strings, uh, a harpsichord plucks the strings, a piano hammers the strings. Cool. So those are the basic differences. There are major differences then inside in the construction of the piano because the piano is so large and there's so much tension on those strings that modern pianos have metal insides. So, you know, older pianos did not. They mm-hmm. had, they were, you know, uh, maybe cypress or something along those lines, but they would not be able to withstand the tension of a, a modern piano now. Okay. So let's hear some harpsichord. Let's. And then we can just hear something else in a minute. So harpsichord plucked. Harpsichord also, if you've listened to Scores and Pours before, which of course all of you have, <laughs> you'll remember that harpsichord, they could not control the volume, right? It correct. was like, it was a steady volume. They couldn't pound harder to get a louder note. That's correct. And that's because those strings are plucked. So it's not like you can't control how hard the string is plucked. 
it's plucked at the same velocity every time. Cool. Now, if you think of an organ, if you imagine an organ that has what those um, buttons that are called stops and mm-hmm. you pull and push on the stops, some harpsichords have levers and mechanisms similar to that that allow you to do things like sometimes you might have a harpsichord that has two rows of keys. And so pushing a lever might activate a second set of keys so that you do get more volume. Okay. But it's not, the volume has nothing to do with how hard or soft the performer is playing. Okay. Which, of course, that's the whole reason people fell in love with the piano is because you can control the how how loud the note comes out yeah. depending on your touch, which you can't do in harpsichord. All right, so let's listen to a little harpsichord. That now, uh, some of this music we've heard before. The reason I chose this music is because I could also find this music recorded on other keyboard instruments. Oh, cool! So here's a little bit of uh, my favorite um, uh, partita by Johann Sebastian Bach. It just happens we can also hear this recorded on a clavichord, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But here is harpsichord. So harpsichord, again, you know, the way that composers who wrote for harpsichord were able to control volume was just by mass of notes, right? So the more notes you had, the louder you could make a sound. And I'll put in, there's actually some really great examples from all kinds of composers. Um, One in particular I'm thinking of that does a really good job of showing that is this, one of the many, many keyboard sonatas by Domenico Scarlatti. So I'll put that in right now. And you'll be able to hear how Scarlatti can build not only volume, but tension through just adding a bunch of fingers. harpsichord sounds like. Uh, And that Scarlatti, a really good example of the ways in which composers wrote for that instrument to create dynamics, uh, even though the instrument itself didn't allow dynamics really. So that's, that's harpsichord. Another instrument that was around a lot at the time, at the same time as the harpsichord. So harpsichord had its heyday during the Baroque era. So 1600s into 1700s. Uh, The clavichord also was really popular then, and the clavichord had hammers like a piano, but the mechanism that uh, propels the hammer toward the string was not sophisticated enough to allow you to, uh, to allow the hammer to fall away right away. So the hammer, when you touch a, a, a note on a clavichord, that hammer stays on the string until you let go which isn't oh. the case on a piano. Yeah. So that allows people to be able to do things with a clavichord that cannot be done on a piano. Like you can literally add vibrato to keys that way by by pushing on the keys to create tension from the hammer Whoa. to kind of wah, 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 wah. It also can drastically affect the intonation because if you're familiar with how strings work, you know, if you push on them, the tone changes. So if you're pushing too hard, you can play keys out of tune and stuff just... Uh, just oh, by are you going to listen to one? Yeah, we're going to hear so, that same 
Bach partita. Oh, cool. Yeah, let's do that. On clavichord. Apparently so. today all I want to say is cool. <laughs> cool. It's like I'm Polly Shore all over again. What's going on? love it. So here is that same Bach partita, the second movement, played on an instrument called the clavichord, which incidentally was Bach's favorite keyboard instrument. It sounds like there's the smallest amount of give. Yeah. Like, like I've talked to you how much I love when, when singers sing lazy and they just like barely fall into measure yeah. or onto note. Yeah. And like, I love how it sounds. I mean, it's fractional, right? It's, I mean, yeah. you really have to, but I love how it sounds like it's just not immediate. And yeah. I mean, it is and it isn't. It's, yeah. By like milliseconds. Yeah. It's a fascinating instrument to hear because to me it sounds a little bit like a blanket thrown over a harpsichord. Yeah, you know, it's mm. it's just a little more, it's just a little more dull of a sound. And is that because of at that time because of the mallets? You know, they were maybe softer. They were like it wasn't yeah. such a plucky, 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 right. plucky sound. It well, was it's like hammers. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also the clavichord is a lot smaller too. Like they're just tinier. They but have I, shorter keys and. Well, and think of this. I wonder if the I wonder if the piano. If we think of how hard the mallets, I mean, they're always, they have those like wrapped in this like felt or some sort yep, of cloth, it's right? It's felt, yep. But you wonder if because nowadays the metal can withstand more tension, mm -hmm. the piano has harder felt. Yes. I wonder if back in the day there was like a lighter or less compact It was, felt. it was Just, like parchment. It yeah. wasn't even felt. So we have, I mean, I wonder if that's like a good mm -hmm. kind of way to... Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, the clavichord, it, it's, it's a fascinating little instrument and the very first biography ever done on Johann Sebastian Bach happened right after he died. And the man who did the biography interviewed Bach's sons and, you know, spoke like this was firsthand knowledge, you know. Mm -hmm. And it says in there that the clavichord, how much Bach loved the clavichord and how, you know, nowadays there are musicologists who feel strongly that Bach's music was written for the clavichord. You know, we don't. It, he wrote very few pieces actually for the harpsichord. Uh -huh. So it's just a, a really fascinating thing. Cool. I'm no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. No, that's so great. Yeah. I mean, I just I have heard the clavichord so many times, and yet honestly, have never heard it right next to the har harpsichord. I know. And so, yeah. as much as I knew they were different instruments, I knew they sounded different. Yeah. I just didn't know that it was that less, like the Spanish word is pontiagudo, where it's like, duk -a -duk -a -duk -a -duk, like yeah. very pointy. I didn't mm -hmm. I didn't really recognize how yeah. much less it is it's, than the harpsichord. It's a much warmer sound, and let's do them side by side just one more time yeah, if that's okay. So here's harpsichord. Here's the clavichord. Mm -hmm. 
want one. Mm-hmm. Love it. Oh, it just makes my heart feel so good. So let's drink, and then we'll talk about the forte piano. So I figured I'd start in antiquity. I'd start with the. <laughs> in, I'd start. We'd, let's it. let's start uh, with harpsichord-like vessels. Um, but instead of traveling back to the 1600s, we'll travel back to 6,000 BCE. Jesus. We've very briefly on the show. Well. That's not true. It wasn't briefly. We did an entire episode (laughs) on they were the first vessels ever used to make wine back 8,000 years ago. So 6,000 BCE. And we know that these vessels contained wine because they had tartaric acid in them, which tartaric acid is only found in that kind of concentration in grapes, therefore wine, right? Yeah, yeah. So we go back to the Caucasus mountain range, the foothills of the Southern Caucasus in the present day Republic of Georgia. And we find what were ancient versions of what we now have and we call quevri. So Q-V-E-R-V-I. And we know that clay has been around since for at least 8,000 years, quite possibly longer. They were always kind of bulbous, uh, somewhat squat. They were usually underground. And what we find is clay has all these properties that make them like a natural shoe-in for fermenting and aging wine, which differentiates it from later usage of wine by the fact that grapes were placed in the quevery or the the dolia or whatever we're going to call the, the, the vessel. The vessel at the time. They were fermented and they were aged and they were stored in this vessel, all whereas that... That doesn't end up happening later. So once clay is made, it is it creates its own sort of thermal environment. Like it keeps wine cooler when fermentations get hot and heavy. It keeps wines uh, warmer when winters get cooler and your wine, your fermentation wants to shut down. Granted, they didn't know about yeast, but they recognize that like, wow, my wine can kind of stop when it gets colder. So clay was a way to keep the fermentation going. We find that the shape of vessels, they change, but we really see a a large adaptation when we get into the Roman times where they were making what we would call amphora. Nowadays, everything's an amphora. But back in those times, amphora were long, very slender. They had handles towards the top. They had a very smaller opening towards the top. And then they had a little like nipple in the bottom that would allow it to sink into sand on a ship. You could easily stack them. You could easily lean them all up, huh. you know, with the cork with the top, the opening yeah. towards the top. And you could ship a lot of these amphora. They were way easier to transport. They were lighter than these huge vessels. Yeah. You could lift them up and you could, you know, stack uh-huh. them accordingly. We see clay vessels being at their height during Greek and Roman times in terms of fermenting, shipping, and, and spreading that knowledge of amphora around. We do notice that in Rome alone, there's a statistic that I found that 4 million amphora supplied the area around Rome. Whoa. And that included 100 million liters of wine. So to give you an idea, when I'm talking about amphora being shipped all over, yeah, that's just for flipping Rome. Yeah. <laughs> now imagine like supplying the entirety of legions. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, and and then now Gaulish and then mm-hmm. Celtic mm-hmm. traders. It was um, incredible. Pretty pretty intense. They found around the first century BCE. They found ships that had sunk. They knew these 
vessels could carry up to what we would consider in modern day, Mm -hmm. a case of wine is 12 bottles. These carried 4,000 cases worth of wine in the form of clay, various clay vessels. So they were like the version of Roman tankers, basically. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry if I was a bit rambly. Clay makes me rambly. No, clay, it's it's amazing to me. And I mean, you know, if I think about it, I'm like, well, clay is probably what, you know, in terms of eating and storing anything is what we were using back then. Clay plates, clay cups. Most definitely. Yeah. That's a great point. And they were, in in the Greek and Roman times, I mean, they were... Storing and shipping olive oil, a lot of things were, yeah, yeah. fish, things were preserved in there. Yeah, most yeah, definitely. Amazing. And I mean, I just, you know, before I met you, had no concept that that was even a thing, right? I had no idea they made wine and clay. And it's one of my favorite things to taste. I love it. It's very, there's something inherently kind of carnal. It's very warm. Ancient yeah. and warm about it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they used to actually, the Romans were into experimenting with different type of like resins and waxes okay. to seal corks because corks didn't, mm-hmm. you know, and clay stoppers didn't really seal well. Sure. Um, and so that's where we get things like, not necessarily but exactly like this, but retsinas, you know, different resins had different flavors. Oh, yeah. And anybody that talks about natural wine being an ancient thing, Wine was fucking adulterated, like crate, like up the wazoo. They're putting lead in wine, you know, to, so there's just a lot of different, um, a lot of different adult. I don't want to talk about adulterations. We're talking about clay. We're talking about clay. (laughs) So are we going to drink it? Uh, No, if you want me to talk about wood vessels, we can drink. Oh, no, that's right, because that's acacia. So we should wait. Let's wait a minute. Or do you want to talk about the wood? Talk about the wood. I all of a sudden, my eyes got really I know, big. I was like, like no, I drink it. let's drink some wine. <laughs> let's do it. So this yep. other one, we're not even drinking clay wine today. Correct. Because we've, yeah. we've, we've had, had quite a few wine, clay wines. Which on is the, fabulous. Yeah. And like, it's, you know, a little bit porous. Uh, so that's, it allows it to breathe. And this also is quite porous. And I wanted to, so Emily and I, we started with the stainless steel wine, which we'll go back to. But I wanted to show how not fruity this is when you compare it to a stainless steel fermented and or aged wine. So this is done all in acacia. It's from a producer called Castel Noirna. Uh, they're up in the northern part of Italy um, and close to the Trentino Alto Adige area. And this is done with Nociola and Chardonnay from 2017. But they've created fizz by, in 2018. They put a little must from the Chardonnay, so juice from the Chardonnay grapes in, created some sparkle, bottled, Bob's your uncle. <laughs> but, so this is technically a frizzante, it's not a pet nat. So, okay. do you smell how it just smells like tanned skin? Yeah. Honestly, it smells like sunburn, kind of. That's like acacia, to me, smells like that. And Interesting. Oak, oak we've talked about on the, on the program mm-hmm, before, mm-hmm. like, wood often will give... You know, it's great. Wood is great because it is lighter than clay. Why did we move to wood? Because it was lighter. Mm-hmm. They didn't know that it allowed for wines to breathe, but they did notice after centuries of using it, they noticed that the flavor was like quote unquote better. They'd be like, mm-hmm. wow, I shipped the wine and now it's better because it would be shipping in oak. It would have mm-hmm. these kind of more regal flavors compared to clay. Sure. So, first of all, wooden barrels. Exclusive, almost exclusively palm barrels have been around for thousands of years. 
back in the day they were shipping like in the, I think right around the 3000 BCE, give or take a millennia because, you know, I'm tired. <laughs> Present day Georgia, Armenia were shipping wines. The Caucasus region was shipping wines to around Mesopotamia in palm wood barrels. Weird. Um, they didn't bend well and they didn't, they but they were lighter to ship then obviously they're clay vessels mm-hmm, and they mm-hmm. were underground. So how are they going to ship those? Yeah. So they ship them um, via palm wood. We see this kind of falling out of favor in, in lieu of people shipping things in these slender amphoras. But when the Romans, like I was talking about, they were up and sharing information with the Gauls and the Celts, mm-hmm. they noticed that the Celts, we think, invented the wood barrel. They noticed that they would bend wood, toast wood, and they would use metal metal loops to keep keep mm-hmm. the wood together. Mm-hmm. They brought that information, ran with it. They would be fermenting wines, usually in clay, and then shipping them in barrels, and they would ship them all over the Roman kingdom. They became so popular that they actually had to, as they were exploring Gaul or present-day France, they would need to, they were planting vines. They needed to rip up vines so that they couldn't ship wine back to the Roman Empire because those flavors were becoming so popular in Rome (laughs) (laughs) to protect domestic, quote-unquote, production. Um, I mean, wood has been around since almost the beginning of trading, we'll say, but it obviously had uh, more to do with how to transport it. It's flavor too, but that came later. It had to do with how easy it was to transport. How So when you smell it, what do you think of this little guy? It does does not smell as fruity or ripe as the last one. That's for darn sure. Mm-hmm. And you notice on the palate, we'll talk about tannin. There's obviously tannin from bubbles, but do you notice it is more grippy and will taste, if you'd like to taste Whoa. side by side, you can dump that in here. I really do. Just notice the gum action. Notice how like porous, like that. That's like porous and stavy on the gum line. You'll notice this. Now give it a little, and you'll notice towards the end, like you notice it obviously up in the gum line, but towards the end, this has this like faint bitterness. Mm-hmm. And I find like in that lean, it's very lean. And I think to me that's like acacia through and through. Out of the entirety of last year, 2019, when I tasted this, I was like, this is the best example of acacia I've tasted mm. this year. Nice. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? That little, yeah. that little tug on the gum line? Yeah. Mm. It's fascinating. What it's delicious. Th- what do you think about the wine? I like it. I I think it's great. It's tremendously bubbly. It's called Rethium, by the way. The wine is. It's called Rethium, yeah. And that actually is a an homage to some some kind of wine in antiquity. I forget the story, but they did name mm. it after nice. um, a popular wine. The wines were shipped in barrel well into the 1800s. Um, they were in the 1600s was when we have the advent of the glass bottle, and so from you know the 3000 BCE that wines were coming from the Caucasus to Egypt mm-hmm. through Roman times. Through the entirety of the 15, 16, 1700s when Madeira, all of that was being formed and wines were being shipped over to the colon, new colonies, the quote-unquote new world, all of that was happening in some sort of wood barrel. Amazing. Up until the advent of glass bottles. And even then, most people that could afford to buy a cask of wine, they would buy the cask and then they would bottle it at home. 
So, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Huh. We only see 18, really the 1800s, and in some places it was illegal. Like up until, I can't remember if it was Britain or the United States, I think it was Britain, where you could not have like sell wine and bottle because it was for fear that the negotiant, the importer, was like doctoring the bottles and selling them uh, nefariously. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you would be, it was safer if it came in a bottle or a barrel. A barrel. And then you bottled them yourself. Or you would own your own bottles if you were privileged enough. Send those to the grower. Yeah. The grower would bottle the wine for you and ship them back. Oh, wow. Why? Like the grower can't do some tricks in, in his or her cellar too. <laughs> exactly. Surely. <laughs> But yeah, so sorry, wow. but that, was a, that was a long talk, but here's to vessels and here's to clay and here's to wood. Love it. Here's to acacia. Acacia. Cheers. Tighter grained. Yeah. Very tight grained. Yeah. Interesting. Doesn't have that vanilla that oak has. No, thank God. I get, I just get over that so fast. It doesn't have the thermal quality though that clay has. Would you agree? Very true. Yep. Having yep. had clay wines before and it doesn't yeah. have, they do lack the freshness that clay has that I really adore. Or stainless steel has. Good, yeah. Good call. Emily Reese. <laughs> we going to uh we going to the Forte you piano? Hear some forte piano? I I would I want nothing more <laughs> than to listen to the Forte piano right now. Composers and keyboardists alike in this, you know, right around the in that whole sweet spot of like late 1600s, early 1700s. Ju- the, the the harpsichord wasn't enough. The clavichord definitely wasn't enough. One of the things we didn't talk about a moment ago, a moment ago in the clavichord conversation is it's a really quiet instrument for the most part. Mm-hmm. It's not gonna you can't have a clavichord concerto, you know, where the clavichord's yeah. up on stage with a full orchestra and being heard. It's it's just you know harpsichord is much uh, more of a piercing sound in that way. Stainless steel, if you will. Yes. Okay. So w- what happened is. Uh, Pianists, composers as well, wanted more options on on the keyboard. They wanted to be able to affect the sound. And there was, uh, right around 1700, a man who was a keyboard inventor and tinkerer named Bartolomeo Cristofori. And he is single-handedly credited with inventing the piano. Cristofori nailed it when it came to that action I was speaking of earlier where on the piano, a hammer hits the string and then immediately falls away. So there's a very complex mechanic action that's happening in the inner workings of a piano that allows that to happen. And that's what Cristofori perfected. And well, he not necessarily perfected, but it's what he invented and others went on to perfect, which is how we have the modern piano. So essentially inside, when you strike a key, the hammer hits and then there's a little mechanism inside that immediately allows that hammer to fall away so that when you hit the note, the hammer doesn't stay on the string. It gets out of the way and that allows you to do a couple of things. It allows you to just restrike it again right away and it also just allows for any number of different uh, you know, loudness, softness, all, all these things. Variations, yeah. Yep. So Christofori was able to invent this because he was discovered by the prince of Tuscany, Ferdinando de' Medici, the Medicis, right? So Ferdinando, who was the grand prince of Tuscany, he was very interested in mechanical objects, and so he collected clocks and he also collected keyboards. And he... Sounds like a guy I need to know. (laughs) He ran into uh, Cristofori 
in Venice, which is where Cristofori was from, and basically forced uh, Cristofori to come work for him uh, by paying him such an exorbitant or giving him everything he wanted, basically. And that allowed Cristofori to have his own workshop eventually. He had a couple of apprentices to help him try and invent a way to have a keyboard that could have volume and sound. So the very first thing that where we see the word forte piano, which, by the way, comes from the following. The term forte means loud, and the term piano means soft. So he created an instrument that could do both, loud and soft, forte piano. So the first uh, piano forte that Cristofori invented had 49 keys. Now, you know how many a piano has now. 88. 88. So quite a bit shorter. Yeah. All wood. The strings were made of brass and wow. uh, the the low strings were made of brass. The the high strings were made Nickel? of steel. Oh, steel. steel! Where were they? Where were they getting those metals from? Like, where were they? God, that's so I crazy. Mean, well, I'm sure that Ferdinando de Medici had something to do with that. Oh yeah, <laughs> pillaging uh, the Eastern world, perhaps. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Uh, but in any event. Uh, Cristofori then invented this instrument that was able to have a dynamic expression to it that the harpsichord couldn't have. And it really changed the world and set off decades of arguments, really, because there were people, of course, very married to the sound and the eccentricities and just performance capabilities of the harpsichord. And then we've got this new instrument, right, that can suddenly do all these different things and uh, and it's it's really a remarkable sound. I think of the forte piano when it, when I hear a forte piano, it sounds like a saloon piano. It really does. And part of that is, you know, a modern piano has a big, huge cast iron plate in the middle of it mm-hmm. to help with the tension, and that obviously has large ramifications on the sound. Mm-hmm. You know, anything in proximity of an item creating sound is going to affect how that sound sounds. That's just the nature of sound. So when when we hear a forte piano and everything inside of it is wood, it definitely does have a much warmer sound to it. Yeah, like a resonation. As a a modern piano. Um, But it had its own challenges and it sounds really kind of, it can sound rinky-tinky. So... Here's a really fun thing where we can hear a recording of a tremendously famous piece on harpsichord, on piano, modern piano, and on forte piano. So let's start with harpsichord just to remind us where we were coming from in that day and age. So this is the aria from Bach's Goldberg Variations. Here's what it sounds like on forte piano. You can hear the mechanisms working, right? You can hear the mecha- like mm-hmm. yep 
It's also not tuned in equal temperament, but that's a discussion for another show. For equal sure. temperament meaning in the same key, right? No, like, equal temperament means all the notes are tuned and equidistant from each other. So they're okay. All, yeah, forte piano. Okay, here's Regular modern piano. piano. Even just then, there's a difference in volume mm-hmm. that there was in the forte piano too, but not as yeah. not as um, yep. elegant of a change. The cast iron plate in a modern piano changed everything because not only did it allow for the addition of a couple more octaves of sound, but it allowed for just a, a greater depth of expression. Mm-hmm. Really, more way more than the forte piano. Okay, well, we could listen to that all day. (laughs) I know, both like. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Another uh, really fun, I want to just do a little more forte piano listening if we could, because, you know, it it was a tremendously popular instrument in the 18th century. Most composers had a forte piano and composed on a forte piano. And so it's enriching to me in particular, you know, to listen to that music on forte piano because it's probably as it's much closer to what it sounded like to them than what a modern piano sounds like. So here is, uh, uh, for instance, Robert Schumann, who was a composer in the 1800s. Here is a piece that uh, set of pieces he wrote. We'll hear just one movement of it. And uh, let's listen to it first on forte piano. This is, uh, it's got a couple kind of different translations, but about strange lands and people. Let's call it that. To me, the forte piano also has almost like a harp-like sound that the the modern piano doesn't necessarily have. I can't really put that into better words, and I'm sorry. Well, I, I wish you would have kind of kind of slid in and played it with me, because <laughs> hearing that and knowing what that feels like, I mm-hmm. like it makes perfect sense why it feels that way, and like how it, it's like yeah. chunky, like yeah. it's not as smooth as it, as it is. It's not refined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's not. Um, to me, it's such a hybrid too it it really is a bridge between the two because you can hear harpsichord qualities from it in the fa- to me in the fact that it's all made of wood and everything is very compact and intimate and then it's got the brightness of the piano but not as bright as a modern piano mm-hmm. you know what i mean but let's listen to it on modern piano oh this is vladimir horowitz oh my god Thank you. 
so pretty. And like just overall more it's 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 filed, you know, the edges are yeah. filed. Yep. It's stainless steel. Stainless steel. <laughs> Actually filed. <laughs> to me the forte piano is more like the acacia. Okay. Where it's like a yeah. little bit chiseled. Yeah. It's warm. Mm-hmm. And then if I were to go to the modern piano, I would be like, that's oak. It's got like, oh, it's warmer. It's a little bit more like, overall, it's not as chunky and clunky, even though, right. even though it can be, it can be more or less refined mm-hmm, mm-hmm. depending on what kind, what age yeah. or toast level, because you can toast the inside to be really toasty and influence <laughs> a lot of the flavor or, or less toast. Mm-hmm. So, but I would say that I would say acacia is forte piano and oak is modern piano. Yeah. Like a little bit more, because acacia, I've never really found a version of acacia fermented and or aged wine that I've been like, wow, that's really refined. Yeah. Sometimes I like them more, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but they're not as refined. And oak mm-hmm. can be like integrated. It can also be really clunky, right? It can be, oak can be really just like chopsticks, you yeah. know, which yeah. we played at the Schubert <laughs> Club. You know, it can be like on certain pianos and we were, mm-hmm. we were dinking around mm-hmm. having fun. And it just doesn't, you know, it sounds like, okay, but. Just, yeah. You know. Yeah. I, I don't hear, to me. In a piano, the warmth of a piano comes from its dynamic expression. It does not come from the sound because to me, the sound of a modern piano is very bright, just like a harpsichord is very bright Mm -hmm. compared to a clavichord or a forte piano, which to me are more like, you know, you know, to me, a clavichord is like throwing a blanket over a harpsichord and a forte piano is like throwing a blanket over a modern piano. I mean, Mm. it just kind of deadens not in a negative way at all but it just tones everything down a little bit and mm-hmm. brings us all back to center as opposed to you know this bright modern piano of steel strings and cast iron guts you know what i mean it's yeah. it's uh it's really amazing I, well amazing. i just want a shirt that says i heart forte piano <laughs> yeah, that's all i bet you could find one and uh you know we'll we'll talk again too because there are so many more things to to say about this transition composers largely led the transition. Composers like Beethoven, who had pianos made for him so that he could write what he wanted to write Mm -hmm. because the piano at the time wouldn't allow that for him. He wanted more octaves, more keys, more sound, more volume. And so composers like Beethoven really kind of led that. And Beethoven had many different types of pianos from many different manufacturers because he was looking for something really specific. And so we can thank composers like that for the reason we have the modern piano today. It's it's amazing. And the other thing that goes hand in hand with this, which we'll talk about another time, is intonation. Pianos uh, are tremendously complicated to tune and cannot, by physical law, be in tune all the time. It's impossible. And therefore, you have to make concessions as to notes being out of tune. And that debate went on for hundreds of years as well and also had a lot to do with the type of music we hear today. So the keyboard, a very powerful instrument in the history of Western music. Wow. A little shout out to my pops who used to... He used to tune pianos for a living, and I've learned so much from my dad about music. But I wonder if, because I'm pretty OCD, and I 
know my both my parents are OCD in their own <laughs> in their own things. Uh, not to just like uh, you know out you guys in the yeah, OCD yeah. department rental units, but <laughs> I wondered if like how my dad dealt with that, like if you know the my nothing ever is- being. Absolutely perfect. Like yeah. you just have to find where you're okay with letting go. Yeah. Um, and I like I would have a really hard time with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because pianos today, ninety five percent of the time are in what's called equal temperament, and there every single note is being is being asked to give a little. Yeah. Which is pretty amazing. So uh, when we have wow. this show someday, which we will, I've got some beautiful recordings of Beethoven piano sonatas that aren't in equal temperament. So they're in a tuning that's much more appropriate to the time when Beethoven was living. And you can listen to those side by side and it's it's amazing. Should I vessel? Yes, please. My God, yes. So we're going to, the last two vessels, I'll, I'll make it quick here. Um, so we know that concrete was around during the time of the, the Greco-Roman times, we'll say. Okay. Um, we know that they were fermenting their wines in these huge concrete vats of sorts. Why, obviously, well, the, the thermal thing, they understood that it kept things cool and kept things warm oh, when they needed concrete to. concrete does too. Concrete does as well. Nice. Thick, usually quite thick walls. But what's the result? Of, and they're porous, like clay, like oak, so they allow for some oxygenation, which during that time period, they didn't know what that meant. Right. But they, they knew it tasted good. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's the downfall of that? Have you ever lifted up concrete? <laughs> It's freaking heavy. Yeah. It's hard to move around if yeah. you and even nowadays we know that a producer Nomblo uh, has been making vessels to ferment and age wine in out of concrete um, since the 1920s. In the U.S., they've been making pre-prohibition. We've had concrete vessels here, so hmm. you know, yes, they were done. They were used in Greco-Roman times. Kind of fell out of maybe popular favor in lieu of the clay barrel thing, you don't really see a lot of like documentation on what concrete was being used for in the wine world yeah. in the 1700s, say. But we know that since, you know, the early part of last century and before, concrete was around, yeah. sort of fell out of favor during, you know, the 50s and 60s because everybody got on the stainless steel train, which we'll talk about, yeah. and the oak barrel train, especially in the 80s and 90s, 2000s. Yeah. But concrete exudes this incredible realm of freshness that I think you can really only find with clay, hmm. really good quality clay that's lined appropriately. Okay. Um, concrete's that's, a pain. Wait, that's what appropriately? lined appropriately, like in the middle, uh, thank you, in the inside, the walls have to be lined with like a little bit of beeswax or a little, because if not, you're going to have all kinds of clay flavor and you, 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 clay is meant to, yes, it's always going to give a little flavor because it's porous, but you don't want to be, if it's not lined, they're going to eat away at each other and you're just going to have a Mm. must clay fest. So they were experimenting a lot with that, I'm sure, too, in the early days, trying to figure out what they should line it with. Most definitely. And beeswax was, we know that beeswax in the Roman times was like the favored favored type of wax. Okay. Uh, One thing I really want to, because there's a mouthfeel that's very like crisp and it's very forte (laughs) piano-like, but with the elegance of oak. That can happen. That can't. A lot of times, can't happen with clay. Gotcha. If I had one preferred vessel, well, maybe two. Concrete and clay, they toss wow. up, and it really depends on what it's for, why, what, like who's okay. doing what. One thing I do want to 
just talk about quick, even though we're getting close to an hour here. We're good. So, it's been a while since we've had a long one. Like, interchangeably. Everybody in the wine world's all, I age my wine in cement. And I don't want to correct a winemaker because that's not my place. But cement C- is that's used. That's the powder. Cement is used in the production of concrete. Oh, to make concrete. Yeah. yeah. Cement's the powder. Yeah. You don't have cement sidewalks. You, no, have, concrete you have concrete sidewalks that yeah. are made. Okay. So you have aggregates like you have sand and gravel and they're crushed with these other stones. And these are the aggregate material that's like when you look at a piece of concrete, you see these like little fine yeah. grain look like beach, look like you're on a beach. Yeah. Right. And they're mixed with a paste. And that paste is water and cement. And that cement is usually, it's about a volume, I think it is, of weight. It's about 10 to 15% of concrete is cement. When we're talking about wine, if you want to speak about it succinctly and correctly, you have concrete vessels that are made of cement. All cement is not concrete. All concrete is cement. Cement, made out of cement. So with that soapbox, <laughs> I'll go right on to stainless steel. So we know stainless steel was um, developed, obviously, well after yeah. Greco-Roman times. Yeah, and, it's a 20th and concrete. century thing, right? Stainless uh, steel? 19th century. Well, it's oh, a combination. Okay. So there was it was developed in the 1820s in Europe. We talked about this while we were talking about our uh, trombone episode and the importance of stainless steel. They wanted to find like a type of cutlery that could avoid corrosion, and it has to do with its, um, I want to say it's chloride or chromium content, something like that. Anyway, in the 1920s, they started to use it for beer, milk, they realized, wow, this is easy to clean. This doesn't taste like anything. Go lick stainless steel, people. It doesn't taste. It's cold nope. and tastes like nothing. Jillmont's um, always asking to lick things, if you know what it is. It's true. Go lick go a rat. Lick, go lick bark. Go, go lick chew on a, a mouse. mouse. It's true. <laughs> it's true. So in the 1930s, uh, stainless steel was uh, around that time. Mm-hmm. It was brought to the Americas to start being used for beer and in the 50s and 60s and really the 70s, we see the takeoff in winemaking, the boom of stainless steel. Let's make it fruity. Let's make it clean. <laughs> let's make it fresh and easy. Just like Spotify, all the things. <laughs> let's make it easy, Yeah. right? Yeah. Which ha- is great. It's yeah. easy to clean. Mm-hmm. It maintains fruity aromas, which are still to this day preferred in the the wide-ranging world of wine consumption. Mm. What are the takebacks? It doesn't breathe like right. oak and concrete and clay. So it doesn't give – it doesn't have this exchange with oxygen, which we all say wine is living and needs – if anything, living needs air yeah. to be its full self. So if you just have this non-reactive, non-breathing surface – you're going to be left with something fruity and fruity and not much else. <laughs> yeah. So um, you don't have that that hyper micro exchange that creates complexities. And it's re- relatively inexpensive. Like it's lightweight and inexpensive. I mean, yes, stainless steel is expensive, but it lasts a long a long yeah. time. And can it break like clay can break? Or can it start to leak after, I don't know, some people have 100-year-old barrels, but some people don't. They want a new flavor. of. They're buying new oak all the time. So stainless steel is relatively inexpensive when you think of how long it lasts. You know, then other people will say it's it's a great vessel for cleaning, but doesn't give much interest to wine. So 
But you know what? I would say the opposite when you taste this dude's wine. So Javier Courant from Domaine Lobile, this is his Chenin Blanc that he disgorges. So he makes. What does that mean? Yeah, I'm getting. I'm getting there. I'm getting there, Emily Reese. <laughs> so he takes. He makes a pet nat. He's. Um, this is his 2018 Chenin Blanc that he. He lets ferment in bottle, and when there's just the right amount of sugar left, he puts a crown cap on it, like a beer cap. It keeps fermenting. You have natural bubbles, so a pet nat. But then what happens? You've got like a bit of you have a bit of lees in the bottom of the bottle, which and, is which is the lees are like the precipitated dead yeast cells after fermentation. Okay. And so he doesn't want to have a cloudy wine like the Castel Noirna, so he will make sure he gets rid of that sediment and which is called disgorging. So you're left with like mm-hmm. this really beautiful clear mm-hmm. but Awesome, Chenin Blanc, and you'll so notice good. how much fruitier, pleasingly enough, that this is from the Castel Noirna. Scores and pours. Cheers. It's seriously, it's like, and I've said this before about other wine. It's like the stuff you get when you're ten years old at Thanksgiving. The sparkling cider, really. I mean, it's that fruity. I wish my parents gave me that. Yeah, I know, when right? I was ten years old at Thanksgiving. <laughs> just ten years old, wasted. <laughs> Give me some more turkey, Grandma. <laughs> I would just actually be like, "Give me some more pet nat, Mama." <laughs> but um, no, no, it's it's really fruity. I love it. Do you notice that the acidity is more prevalent here too? And granted, we're dealing with a grape that is known for being more acidic, Chenin Blanc has more acidity than Nocile and Chardonnay. It's granted it's a year younger, so we have more acidity available to us in theory in bottle. But do you notice, let's just take a sip of this and then let's go back to the Rethium, the one from Trentino, to taste the difference between stainless steel bound acidity that is bound up in there. And granted, we have to make the concession for the previous wine being a year older, but just taste how more electric the Chenin Blanc is. That was the Damn. biggest sip I've tasted on Scores and Pours ever. <laughs> so to Acacia now. Going over to Acacia. Now just One of my notice- favorite materials to build with in Minecraft, by the way. Wow, okay. <laughs> at, at, at Minecraft, we'll need to do that. But just notice how long your mouth waters. That stainless steel has not allowed for this wine to go anywhere, right? Even though Chenin is inherently like really acidic. And this wine in the past, you know, there there are, you know, he does do some wines in older oak, but even if, if this was oak, it's like oak is usually finer grained and you notice a little more vanilla. Now just get this on your palate and see how much your mouth waters. You have to get rid of the fizz. Yeah. Because fizz is not acidity. Right. Once fizz goes away. Wow. Does it, to me, it waters way less. Mm-hmm. Very yeah. present, but it's not as electric. No, it's much flatter. Not, and it's delicious. Let's be clear. It's delicious. Well, and the flatter is that it's different type of effervescence, but now. Oh, no, I don't even mean that. I just mean flavor isn't as bold. Yeah. yeah. Bold, fruity. Now I want you to take this little sip of the Rethium, still acacia, mm-hmm. and kind of give it a good swish mm-hmm. to kind of make all of those flavors be volatile in your mouth. Okay. And then give it a swallow and watch how woody it tastes. It's incredible. Nice. Okay. Wow. But do you notice how the wood tannin is so present? And doesn't it taste like wood? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's amazing. And so this is where, you know, some people have preferences. I think it's really fun. I I, I said I had a preference. You know, in, in the world of wine, I, I love all vessels. Like, just let's be honest. She's an give, equal opportunity vessel lover, for sure. Fucking just give me some Chilean Rowley, and I'm going to be all over that. <laughs> Chilean Redwood um, is, like, another favorite. But, like, it, you know, then this is going to lend itself to different foods, you know? Um, so... I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what that's what I have to say about vessels. Amazing. They all have their place. They all have their purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, about the piano, such a special instrument, so important in the development of Western music uh, in so many ways, whether it's how it was made, how it was tuned, who was writing on it, the keyboard, just tremendously influential instrument that, uh, of course, to this day... Uh, composers around the world are still writing on keyboard, whether they're writing an orchestral piece or an electronic piece or, or whatever. It's all about the keyboard. And which keyboard that we've talked about is your preferred, or do you have one? I mean, you guys know how much I love harpsichord. I, I love harpsichord very much. And I think for me, one of the most fun things about classical music is listening to music on instruments that are as close to possible as what possibly they would have heard then. I love doing that. You know, it's it's amazing to be like, oh, that's a lot closer to what Robert Schumann heard than this modern piano is. You know, and I mean, it's really anybody's guess because we don't have recorded music from then, but it's really fun to wonder and just, I don't know, I, I just think it's great. So if I were to pick one, God, don't do that to me. I can't. I won't even do that yeah. to you then. I just, I, you know, I when we talked too about Chateauneuf du Pop and when that region became in southeastern in the in the southern Rhone, kind of southeastern France, when we talk about, you know, you need to learn about the history of Chateauneuf du Pop when you go for your sommelier certificate, and you need to know the, you know, the dozen plus grape varietals that you can use in Chateauneuf du Pop and aging requirements, and that region really became famous in early, mid-1900s. Wines from that region don't taste like they did back then. So yeah. what's cool when you're drinking Chateauneuf to Pop is to try to find, for me, very similar, what did Chateauneuf to Pop taste like? Because I know what I'm buying right now <laughs> yeah. doesn't taste like w- why it got the accolades in 1936 or whatever, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. So, and I mean, we don't know, but it's fun to try and get as close to it as possible, you know? Would you rather Netflix... Or would you rather muse on this stuff? <laughs> I think musing on this stuff is pretty great. <laughs> uh, what are we uh, cheersing to, Ms. Reese? What, uh, what, what, let's what, just cheers to scores and pours. But which, I mean, which one do you want? Oh, God. Uh, well, the Noirna. Ah, yeah. Love that. All right. Yeah. Cheers. To scores and pours. To keyboards. And vessels. Thanks for listening to Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode along with a wine list and a playlist at patreon.com slash scores and pours. We're also on Instagram at scores and pours. We rely on donations to keep this podcast going. So let's be honest. This means you need to log on to patreon.com slash scores and pours and donate as little as $1 a month, as much as, well, you be the judge of that. As much but as you want. But that's less than a beer a month. 
dollar a month is the minimum. That's, keep keep the booze and the tunes coming. Keep that booze and tunes coming. That's what we need you. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc.